Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, I feel like that's normally we've just uh, switched places yeah. today. Um, <laughs> no, I'm doing good. My parents came down for the week, so they were staying in Kissimmee, which is not that close to us, but we went like every day. We were talking about that this week. Kissimmee is not nearly as close as you think it is. Yeah. And Kissimmee is actually where Disney is. So that's always one thing. Right. When people think of Orlando, they think of Disney and actually it's in Kissimmee and it is close to Orlando, I guess, kind of relatively. But um, if you live here and you're driving there, it feels like it is much farther away than it actually is. So yeah, I totally feel right? your pain driving back and forth multiple days in a row. That would definitely um, get to yeah. me. I'm not a driver, was- as you know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. Well, I remember when I first moved down here, people would come to Disney and they would be like, oh, can we stay with you? I'm like, yeah, but just so you know, I don't live that close. And they would come down and be like, oh, um, yeah. I'm like, yeah, no, I told you. Right. This is not, I don't live in Mickey Mouse's ear. It's right. not that close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm doing all right. This week has been, um, as you know, it's just been very gloomy. It like, oh gosh, the sun yeah. has not come out really all week. And it's been kind of just like, ugh, I woke up this morning and I saw that the sun still wasn't out and it was still nope cloudy and gloomy. And I was like, are we ever going to see the sun again? This is like, so just it's just very slow paced and it makes me just feel like 
dragging and tired and I'm sleepy. Right. No, I totally get it. Yeah. It's like you just look, this is the time of year where you look at your weather app. Hashtag uh, Mandy and Melissa's weather report. (laughs) (laughs) Every day is just showers. You look on the thing, you're like, oh, we're at that part where it's just every afternoon, especially every afternoon is rainy. But this week it's been like morning time too. That's where it gets me like, okay, we need to stop. And the mosquitoes get really bad. I can't. Yeah. I'll just keep going on it. <laughs> I have my little mo- mosquito sucker thing that I got on Amazon with me right now to like in between us talking to try and get some bites off of me just from this morning, just bringing the dog out. You know, so after annoying. you told me about that um, mosquito sucker thing, Facebook started showing me ads for it. Of course it did. Yeah. So yeah. it's only a matter of time before I buy one now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, so we'll get into the episode for this week. If you're a regular listener of the show, then you know how we typically do things. All of the murders we discuss, of course, are senseless and tragic. And while we do believe in justice for victims of all crime, we tend to stick to the cases that are a little lighter on the gore and they contain a few of the less horrific details. Unfortunately, that is not the case this week. We're going to be discussing an infamous murder that happened in Australia in 1986. As an American, I hadn't really heard a ton about this story before, but Australians consider this one of the most widely known crime stories from their continent. The details of the story are more disturbing than some of the content we generally have on the podcast, so if you're not in the mood for that today, maybe this is one you just want to save for later. There are certain things in some crime cases that my brain gets stuck on, and I kind of dwell on these things and think about them over and over again. And one of the things that always breaks my heart in some of these stories is the trauma that a person experiences when they find their loved one murdered or even just finding out that their loved one was murdered. I also think about the people who find the body of somebody that they don't even know, and instantly they become part of something that they didn't really ask to be a part of. And I always think about what it must be like for them and just feel so sad that they have to go through, you know, these experiences. My heart really does go out to families and friends of people, you know, that were involved in a murder case in any way, shape, or form. And this story is just one of the ones, you know, that really got to me and really just broke my heart. On February 4th, 1986, John Reen was at home on his farm on Reen Road, which of course was named after his family. John's cattle was behaving strangely. They were out in the pasture making unusual sounds, and he looked out and could see that they were all huddling around something. John made his way over to the paddock on the farm to investigate what these animals were all riled up about that morning, and what he discovered would change his life forever. A paddock, by the way, is a small field or enclosure where horses are kept or exercised, so basically like a horse pen. When John walked into the paddock, he realized that something horrific had taken place overnight. The cattle were huddling around the nude body of a woman who appeared to have been tortured prior to her death. John recalled that he had actually been briefly awakened during the night of February 2nd to the sounds of screaming, which he at the time chalked up to being just a bunch of teenagers outside fooling around but now he wondered if this was related. John called the police and told them that he believed the woman had been killed, and from there, a terrible, heartbreaking, and unimaginable story began to unfold. Officers arrived to a disturbing scene. The body of a badly beaten young woman was found in the pen. The woman wasn't wearing her clothes, and there was no evidence left in the field other than her body. From the looks of it, the woman had been tortured before being killed and left in this field. Officers at the scene inspected the victim and believed that more than one person had been involved in this murder. 
Chief Inspector Gary Raymond and other officers said that the woman's eyes were open and they could still see the horror in her eyes. That I cannot imagine seeing in that moment. Right. Like what that does to you as an officer. Gary Raymond said, quote, the cruelty shown to her was something we had never seen before, end quote. Sometimes in cases like this, it's hard for officers to know where to begin with identifying the victim, but in this case, officers did have a starting point. A couple of nights earlier, a young woman had been reported missing by her parents after she didn't come home on February 2nd. The woman that was reported missing that night was 26-year-old Anita Kabi. On February 2nd, she went to work at her job at a Sydney hospital from 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. After her shift, Anita joined her friends for dinner. When they were done, Anita's friends drove her to Central Station, where she got on the 9.12 p.m. train back home. Anita got off at the Blacktown train stop, where she was supposed to call her father to let him know that she was ready to be picked up. But Anita never called home that night, and she never came home either. Anita's parents called her husband John and asked if he'd seen her, and when he said no, that's when her parents reported her missing. John went to Anita's parents' house, and everyone began searching for her right away, but they were unable to find her. Officers believe that the victim they found in Mr. Reen's field could possibly be the missing young woman, Anita Kabi. A photo of Anita that was included in the missing persons report appeared like it could be a match, but officers would need more to officially identify the body. It was noticed that the victim was wearing a wedding ring, so that was carefully removed from her finger. This ring was really unique and had an unusual band that would be helpful in identifying her. So officers take this ring to the home of Anita's parents to see if they would be able to identify this ring as belonging to Anita. If they were sure it was her ring, that would be good enough for an ID. But if they weren't sure, they would have to go to the morgue and identify the body. Anita's sister Catherine agreed to take a look at the ring, and she said she thought it did look like Anita's ring, but she wasn't positive because the ring was really dirty. It was actually covered in dried blood whenever she was looking at this. Since this wasn't a 100% positive ID, someone unfortunately had to go in person to ID the body. Anita's father said that he would be the one to do it. Detective Ian Kennedy took Gary to the morgue, and when Gary saw the body, he started sobbing. It was, in fact, his daughter. One of the things I read when I was researching this part of the case was that the detective said he, in that moment, just felt so terrible for this father, you know, who is seeing this and the condition that his daughter's body was in that the officer said he um, gave him, he he said he gave him a cuddle. So he gave him a hug, you know, while they were standing there and like that just, oh my gosh, there's so many parts of the story that just really get me. But oh man, I just can't even imagine Yeah. And knowing that they didn't, they know she's in such bad shape that they don't want to make the family do that. Right. Knowing they have to, to, you know, confirm it, just that would be so difficult. Yes. Anita Lorraine Lynch was born on November 1st, 1959 in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia to her father, Gary, and her mom, Grace, who was a nurse. Gary was a World War II veteran, and after the war, he became a trainer of young tradesmen who were taking up careers in the aviation construction industry. Anita grew up with one sister named Catherine, and the two of them were extremely close. They loved going to the city to shop together, and Anita herself was very stylish. She had very expensive taste in clothing and always looked very fashionable. The family was described as being genuine and ordinary, which 
I guess as a compliment, I wouldn't mind being described as ordinary. No, it sounds like a nice thing. Like it doesn't, it's not like dramatic and right. <laughs> always fighting. It's just like, yeah, no, they were great. They were fine. Right. Nothing unusual. But the main thing that people always had to say about Anita was that she was exceptionally beautiful and she was just absolutely gorgeous. In 1979, she was the Miss Western Suburbs beauty pageant winner. But her parents said that she was beautiful both in mind and body, and she was so much more than just a pretty face. Anita was a very kind and caring person who truly wanted to help others, and she had this way of interacting with people that really let them know how much she cared. She was an amazing listener, always giving her full attention, and she was very easy to talk to. Everyone who knew Anita described her as just being delightful and a very happy person to be around. She was free-spirited, had a great laugh, and loved good music. In 1979, Anita was feeling like she wanted a change in her life, so she went to nursing school and found out that she actually really loved nursing. She ended up getting a job as a nurse at Sydney Hospital. When Anita was 20, she met John Cobby, who was three years older than her. He was a nurse at the hospital while Anita was going through nursing school, and that's how they met each other. One day, they saw each other in the hallway in the hospital, and Anita was the one to strike up a conversation with John. As he put it, he was gobsmacked that Anita was even speaking to him. He thought she was completely stunning and, in his words, dazzling, and felt like she was way out of his league. But he took a chance and asked her out for a drink, and she said yes. The two of them went out that night to the Prophet restaurant and had a great time together. They had such a good time that they actually went back to the same restaurant for another date the next night, and the rest was pretty much history. They were all about each other. Everybody around could see just how happy they made each other and how in love they were. After dating for six months, they moved in together. In 1981, John realized that he couldn't imagine life without Anita, and so he proposed to her, and she said yes. Anita got pregnant soon after and unfortunately miscarried the pregnancy but the couple was married on March 27, 1982. They moved to Coffs Harbor, and they both continued their nursing careers. John also started training horses, and he did really well with that, so well that it afforded the couple the luxury of traveling the world together. Anita loved Rome in particular and felt like it was the most beautiful city in the world to her. After traveling the world, John and Anita returned to Australia and they tried to resume their normal lives, but Anita seemed a little restless and it was like she was craving something different. John suggested that they try for another baby, but that wasn't quite what Anita had in mind. She really wasn't ready for that yet. What Anita really wanted was to take a break from the relationship and just to see where life led them. No hard feelings or anything. She's just kind of thinking, you know, let's just see what happens. Right. For John, this separation was more of a hiccup in the relationship rather than a permanent situation. And he ended up being right. Anita did move back in with her parents for about six weeks, but after that, they were pretty much back together. During the week before Anita was killed, the couple took a romantic trip to the Central Coast where they discussed the future and decided to start looking for a house to buy together when they got back. They were supposed to go house hunting on February 3rd, but Anita went missing on February 2nd. So you can imagine why John may have felt a little uncomfortable around Anita's family when it was learned that she had been brutally murdered. John really felt like all eyes were on him and that everyone suspected that he had done it. But there was still a long investigation ahead before the family would learn the truth. And we're going to get into all of those details after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. 
If you're like me, you may have gone through a bit of a condo marrying thing last year. While I didn't stick to everything I learned, I really embraced the idea of keeping a few things I love instead of tons of things I kind of half liked. And the San Francisco-based company Kuyana agrees. The company is made for women by two women, and their philosophy is fewer, better things, and they mean it. Kuyana makes long-lasting bags, accessories, and clothing from high-quality materials that you'll want to wear every day, and they've been making these timeless pieces for the past 10 years, and they'll be part of your wardrobe for at least the next 10. I recently got the Kuyana double loop bag and cappuccino, and when I tell you I never need another purse again, I am not lying. Not only is this bag so beautiful to look at, it looks great with everything. Plus, the versatility allows me to wear it across my body or just on one shoulder. It also has adjustable buckles and a backslip pocket plus two exterior pockets, so I can keep all my essentials securely in my bag without fighting a zipper thanks to their magnetic flap closure. It's made from luxurious Italian leather, and the inside has suede, and it meets the highest standards of craftsmanship while also working towards the company's sustainability goals. Kuyana never goes on sale, but as a special offer, our listeners can receive 10% off your first order over $150 plus free shipping. Visit kuyana.com slash moms to get your individual code. That's C-U-Y-A-N-A.com slash moms. Start shopping fewer, better at kuyana.com slash moms. We all have our little ways to get away from it all. Sure, vacations are nice, but what about those middle-of-the-day breaks we sometimes just need? Whether it be taking the long way home, eating secret snacks, breaks are essential. That's why we want to share our new favorite way to take a break from it all, playing a quick round of June's Journey. June's Journey is the free-to-download hidden object murder mystery game that has over 30 million fans across the world becoming their own kind of detective. The June's Journey game takes place in the Roaring Twenties with June Parker investigating the mysterious death of her sister. And come on, you're listening to a true crime podcast. We know you're interested. June's Journey is visually so pretty and so fun. I love that I can ignore the mess in my life and enter into June's much more sophisticated and fancy murder mystery of a life. One of my favorite parts about June's Journey is collecting clues and searching for hidden objects. And if you're the person in your house that everyone goes to when they lose something, trust me, you'll excel in this part of the game. I love sneaking in a quick round while I'm walking the dog or even waiting in line for a Diet Coke. Thanks to thousands of intricate scenes, I'll never run out of things to do in June's Journey. The attention to detail in every frame of this game is incredible. Plus, new chapters are added every week. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking a little about John and Anita's relationship prior to Anita's murder and John kind of visiting with the family and, you know, kind of feeling like the odd man out and maybe that all eyes were on him just because of their relationship. And as we know, police are always looking at the husband or the person you're in a relationship right. with first. Yeah, that would be very stressful to be like, I know I didn't do anything, but there's no way to make these people think that I didn't do anything. So on February 4th, Dr. Joseph Malouf performed an autopsy on Anita's body. He determined that the cause of death was blood loss from having her carotid artery cut. She had severe cuts to her throat and neck, and the bruises on Anita's body were found to be consistent with a systematic beating. She had extensive bruising to multiple parts of her body, including her head, her chest, face, shoulders, groin, and legs. Anita suffered a very forceful blow to her right eye, and her fingers were broken or dislocated. The examination also revealed that Anita had been sexually assaulted multiple times. Sergeant Ian Kennedy was the lead investigator on the case, and as we were saying, naturally the first person he looked into was Anita's husband, John. 
They first spoke to John on February 4th, and it was a rather strange interview. The research on what exactly happened in the interview isn't very clear. Remember, this is years and years ago. But the gist is that John felt that he was being bullied and coerced into confessing that he had something to do with Anita's murder when he didn't. Police just kept saying that he did it, and eventually John felt backed into a corner, so he just blurted out, quote, I've done it. I must have done it. You've told me I've done it, end quote. But police really had no evidence to prove that whatsoever, and he was able to leave the station that day. And that's kind of the part that's unclear, like how after he technically said he did it, did they just say like, okay, well, you can go home now, you know. So John leaves thinking he must have had something to do with Anita's death since the police were so adamant that he did. He was very confused. I totally can see that. If you told me something enough times, I could believe it. It would just be such a mind thing you know well, that's a thing I mean it's a thing yeah it's a, it, unfortunately it is a thing that happens and it's not this isn't the first case that you've ever heard where you know no. somebody becomes so confused and starts believing that what the police are telling them is the truth and so they start saying things to that effect even though it's just it is it's crazy to think about but it does happen so I totally get it yeah for sure so John was soon cleared as a suspect but again we aren't sure exactly what took place you know, leaving it to where they were able to actually clear him. Once he was cleared, though, officers really didn't have any other suspects. They spent 18 and 19 hours a day investigating this murder and combing this farm where she was found to look for evidence. On February 6th, the state government offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of Anita's killers. On February 9th, officers carried out an unconventional investigation tactic. I actually think this was kind of genius. A female officer dressed up as Anita and reenacted her last known movements. They went to the train station and got on the 912 train from Central to Blacktown. As they rode the train, they talked to passengers and asked if they knew anything about Anita. So the idea was that this reenactment might jog somebody's memory. So instead of just being on there, these people, a lot of them are taking the same train night after night after night, but maybe seeing somebody dressed like her that kind of looked like her might cause them to remember something yeah which is I think it's so brilliant. bizarre but so smart yeah right? I think it's a great idea so officers learned then that there were witnesses on Newton Road that heard a woman screaming at about 9 50 p.m which actually lined up perfectly during their enactment officers were on the street at the same time that Anita would have been by taking this 912 train so to answer the question as to why Anita was walking rather than calling her dad for a ride as planned it was learned that the phone that Anita was trying to use to call her father was out of service and so that's when she decided to just walk home from the station instead. Knowing that it was around 9.50 when Anita was abducted gave the investigators a lot more to work with. The witnesses from Newtown Road actually had quite a lot of information to give the police. Newtown Road was the street between the train station and the street where Anita lived, so she was very close to home. Multiple witnesses actually saw the abduction with their own two eyes, which was pretty shocking for the police to hear, right? They're like, oh my gosh, people actually saw this happen. As Anita was walking home that night, about a mile and a quarter away from her house, a HT Holden Kingswood, which is a car, pulled up to a stop beside her. Two men got out of the car, grabbed Anita, and drug her inside while she was kicking and screaming, all while onlookers were watching. A 14-year-old girl named Linda was inside her home when she heard screaming outside, and she ran outside to see what she described as a dirty white car with a woman being dragged into the back seat by her arms and shoulders while she was clearly trying to escape. 
Linda ran inside and called for her older brother, who came outside and tried to chase after the car. Another 16-year-old boy named Stephen, who also lived nearby, was at home with his mom when he heard the screams, and he also witnessed Anita being pulled into the car before it drove off. Stephen's neighbor Dale was outside, and the two of them hopped in Dale's car and tried to actually chase down the car that took Anita, but after looking for 15 minutes, they gave up and went home to call the police. Thankfully, Stephen's mom had already done that. Officers responded that night, and they began investigating. And later that night, Anita was officially reported missing by her parents. Witnesses told the police that it looked like there was about five men inside the car that took Anita. Once the officers knew what kind of car they were looking for, they were able to figure out that a similar vehicle was recently reported stolen. And through various means, they were able to determine that the vehicle was stolen by three men. 19-year-old John Travers, 19-year-old James Murdoch, and 22-year-old Leslie Murphy. Some sources suggest that a tip was what led them to making this discovery. Although the police had grounds to arrest these men on stolen vehicle charges, they didn't have anything to justify murder charges just yet. The officers raided all three of the men's homes in the Blacktown area in the early morning, and all three of them were arrested. They all displayed signs of nervousness and what investigators believed was very telling body language. They believe the men did in fact have something to do with the murder and not just the stolen vehicle. One officer told John Travers that they were investigating Anita's murder and he immediately made a comment about how he did not slit her throat. And the officer never asked him anything about that and didn't say anything about that. My gosh, that's so specific yeah. and like, feels like the last thing you would want to say. Right. But of course, that still isn't proof. So officers arrested John for stealing the car as well as for a past crime that he was wanted for, which was the rape of a young boy in Western Australia. As it turned out, John Travers did have a bit of a rap sheet. John Travers was born February 27th, 1967, and was the oldest of seven children. His mother, Sharon, and his father, Ken, were working class people who raised their kids in a suburb in Sydney. The area they lived in was known for its high rate of unemployment and was in the top five suburbs for break-ins and drug abuse. John's parents really struggled to maintain order and control over him, and his mother was even scared of him. His father, Ken, was physically abusive, and there were rumors that he sexually abused the children as well. Even Sharon said that Ken would, quote, whip his kids into shape. At one point, John was sent to a juvenile detention facility, but it didn't help any of his behavioral problems. In 1981, John's father left the family, leaving John as the head of the household with his mom and six younger siblings. In order to provide for them, he turned to a life of crime. He ended up struggling with drug and alcohol addiction and began smoking pot at the age of 13. By 14, he was a full-blown alcoholic with a very bad reputation for violence and theft. According to him, he only stole from people who wouldn't be deeply affected by his actions. He didn't steal from people he deemed to be too poor to steal from. Oh. Yeah, I, I'm glad you get to make those. That's like a very Dexter thing to, right? to say in the middle of it. But when John was in the 10th grade, he was expelled for being a disruption and for fighting a lot. But from the age of 12 onward, John was in and out of jail. Just a few weeks before Anita was murdered, John raped a boy in Western Australia. According to John's aunt, he had also done the same thing to sheep in the past. This is mentioned in a lot of sources, but we aren't sure if it's true or if it was just a rumor that had been spread in the media and articles about the case. At the time of his arrest, John was living in Duneside and was unemployed. 
John was taken to jail while the other two men, James and Leslie, were released on bail and put under surveillance. On February 22nd, John asked if his aunt would bring him some personal items to the jail. At this point, his aunt, who did not want to be identified and she only goes by Miss X in the sources, um, she was already feeling like John was guilty of Anita's murder and she wanted to help the police. So she approached them with her feelings and she offered to meet John in the jail and talk to him while wearing a wire. She ended up having a 45-minute conversation with John in the jail in which he confessed to killing Anita. Miss X asked John if he had sex with Anita, and he said that he did, as well as all of the other men involved that were in the car. It turned out there was more than just James and Leslie in the car. Leslie's two brothers were also there, Gary and Michael Murphy. So there were the three Murphy brothers, James Murdoch, and John Travers in the car the night that Anita was abducted. Miss X asked John why they had to kill Anita, and he said that all of them were drunk, and at this point, Anita had seen all of their faces. So John said that all of the men agreed that they had to kill her. John told Miss X that he was the one who actually cut Anita first and that he had never killed anybody before this. He said after the murder, the men all went back to his house, built a fire, drank some more beers, and burned all of Anita's clothing. After hearing this confession, officers asked Miss X to wear a wire and then to go visit James Murdoch at his home to try and get more information and more details. She did go to his house and she told him that John had already confessed and she knew everything. We don't actually know the details of what James told her because the confession was never played in court, but after obtaining this confession, the police did have enough to finally arrest and charge all five of the men with Anita's murder. And we're going to get back into the rest of the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. As you guys know, we are big summer people, but summer means go, go, go. We're running kids to the beach or to friends' houses, or sometimes just walking out to the car will zap all your energy thanks to the lovely heat we live in. Thankfully, at the end of the day, I know I'm going to get a good night's sleep thanks to my sleep number bed. While my kids don't get the value of a good night's sleep, it's something I literally daydream about. And sleep number makes my dream a reality. And even more than that, sleep number beds allow you to take charge of your sleep with their custom settings. I like a softer bed, so I'm sleeping great at a sleep number 30, while on the other side of the bed, my husband likes his side a little firmer at a 40. And when you visit the Sleep Number store, not only do you get the VIP treatment, you get to try out all of their beds like you're in an updated version of the Princess and the Pea, except each bed is magical. I refer to my bed as simply my cloud bed because it feels just like sleeping on a fluffy cloud. I discovered that my perfect Sleep Number setting is a 30, just like Melissa, but occasionally I even go down to a 25 for an even softer, fluffier experience. Delivery was also so easy with Sleep Number. I was given a window of time for the delivery, and the guys that came to deliver it even helped us move our old bed to my daughter's room. They took the time to explain all the functions to us, including the snore button, where if my husband begins snoring in the middle of the night, instead of pretending I'm accidentally kicking him, I can just push the snore button that raises his side of the bed up slightly, and he doesn't even notice. But I do, because it makes the snoring stop which helps me get an amazing night's sleep, which literally helps with everything, including decreasing anxiety overnight by reorganizing connections in the brain. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Special offers for a limited time only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com moms. 
If you have kids or are into gaming yourself, you probably hear a lot about noobs and pros. While we may feel like noobs in the land of podcasting, the fact is our little show has been going on for almost four years. And if we want to look like the pros that some people have confused us with, we need to up our game. And one way we can do that is by using Canva. If you've connected with us or on the show, chances are it's through social media. Every week we post artwork to correspond with that week's episode. But I bet you didn't know that all of these flyers were made using Canva. Canva makes me feel like I have a master's degree with their easy-to-use platform that has everything you need to design just like a pro. Canva Pro has everything you need all in one easy-to-use place that includes a collection of over 75 million premium photos, videos, audio, and graphics. With Canva, no idea is too big or too small, so whether you're a marketing team, a mom entrepreneur like us, or even have to make presentations as a student, you can get that professional look you need without paying big bucks. My favorite Canva Pro feature is access to the unlimited content such as photos, elements, video, and more at no extra cost. Since I'm creating new artwork every week, I need to have a lot of options available so each one can be unique. I'm amazed every week when I sit down and look for an element or photo that I think is pretty specific, only to find that Canva has exactly what I need to turn the image in my head into something I can see and share on social media. Design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use our promo code. Just go to canva.me slash moms to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash moms, canva.me slash moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Miss X and how she was able to sit down with two of these guys from Anita's murder and actually get confessions from them while wearing a wire, which is 
can you imagine being in that situation and the amount of stress you would begin to be like, everything is really riding on this and I have to do this right. And also I'm now part of this, you know, it's just, it's just expectations and something I could never even understand or wrap my mind around, but thank goodness she did it. So when officers show up to arrest Leslie, he's actually hiding under the blankets between two women. Upon hearing that the police were charging him with murder, Leslie immediately said, quote, Yes, I was there, but Travers did it, not me, end quote. On the way to the station, Leslie told officers that John Travers was the one to cut Anita's throat, and he said that the other man participated in the rape, but not the murder. Leslie claimed that he tried to participate, but he couldn't, but he threw his two brothers under the bus. A manhunt was launched to even find Michael and Gary Murphy. They were found on February 26th after a tip was called in that they were hiding in a Glenfield house. When police found them, it was 10 p.m. and Michael was inside holding a baby. Officers told him to put the baby down and get on the ground. He was then successfully handcuffed. Meanwhile, officers heard someone else running through the house and soon learned that it was Gary trying to escape out the back door. He actually peed his pants in fear when the police showed up, which, good, I'm glad. (laughs) He resisted arrest and ended up with a few scratches on his face. James and Gary were taken to the abduction site and to the field where Anita was found and were instructed to recreate the events of that night. When they got back to the jail, there were hundreds of people outside chanting that they wanted the death penalty for these men, and some bystanders tried to actually squeeze past the police to get their hands on the killers themselves. Wow. Yeah. When police interviewed Leslie Murphy, he also confessed his involvement in Anita's death. Interestingly, though, uh, Leslie could not read and apparently had a very low IQ, and officers tried to show him the statement that James Murdoch had given them, but it was clear that Leslie couldn't read, so they had to read it out loud to him. When they were finished interviewing Leslie, someone had to read what the record said so that Leslie could sign off on it. On April 16th, officers visited John Travers in jail and asked him about the knife he used in the murder. John said the last time he saw the knife, it was in his kitchen drawer, but he was shown a similar knife and confirmed that he used that same type and that he bought it for $30 from an archery shop. None of these men showed any remorse whatsoever for their role in an innocent woman's death. It's really hard to say why all five of these men went along with such a heinous crime. We talked about the troubled upbringing that John Travers went through as a child, but not much is known about the other killers. James Murdoch was a friend of John Travers who, according to his attorney, grew up in abject poverty with a lot of violence and alcoholism at home. At the time Anita was killed, James was living in Westmead and was unemployed. He knew the Murphy brothers, but only as acquaintances. The Murphy brothers evidently had a rough upbringing too, but we don't know a lot about the details of it besides the fact that their parents once contacted an inner city outreach center to help the boys stop their life of crime. Gary was unemployed at the time of the murder, and Leslie was working as a maintenance worker. Michael Murphy was the known bad boy among these three brothers. He was known to steal cars, and he also escaped from jail in 1985, and he was wanted at the time of Anita's murder. And the reason he was in jail when he escaped was for armed robbery. He didn't have a permanent address since he was a fugitive, and so he was also unemployed. So what exactly happened that night? According to their confessions and the results of the investigation, the men were drunk and joyriding when they saw Anita walking home alone. Two of them got out of the car and grabbed her, forcing her into the backseat of the car. Anita was then held at knife point and stripped of her clothing. 
Michael Murphy and John Travers raped Anita in the backseat of the car, and the men then stole Anita's purse and used her money to stop and get gas in the car before taking her to the paddock on the Reen farm. She was dragged from the car and forced to endure repeated sexual assault and rape at the hands of all five men. John Travers then cut Anita's throat and the men left her there in the field. The men then went home and burned Anita's clothing and continued to drink beers. My gosh. The trial began on March 16, 1987, with Justice Maxwell overseeing the trial. Before the trial began, John Travers decided to change his plea to guilty, and his sentencing was scheduled to happen along with the other four defendants later. The trial for the other four men was still held. The purpose was not to argue whether or not Anita was murdered, but to prove if any of the four men had anything to do with it. They all, of course, already knew that John Travers was the one to physically kill Anita, but they also had to prove if the men were involved, how exactly they were involved, and if this was murder or manslaughter. On the evening of the first day of the trial, a Sydney newspaper called The Sun published an article with the headline, Anita Murder Man Guilty, on the front page with a picture of John Travers. The rest of the article was on the second page, which talked about how John pled guilty and that the other four men were going on trial. The defense did not like this and thought that it could create an unfair prejudice, so the jury was discharged and a new trial was to begin the following week. But there were also other media mishaps in the case that the defense thought were unfair. And then when the jury was discharged, rumors flew that it was because Michael Murphy was identified as a prison escapee. When the trial restarted, the defense requested that it be postponed for six months due to the media reports around the case. Justice Maxwell denied this request. He said it didn't matter. The media was all over this case and would be no matter how long they waited. He said that he would issue, quote, adequate and repeated directions to the jury, end quote. The prosecution presented a horrific case detailing Anita's abduction, rape, torture, and murder, describing it as, quote, sustained degradation, brutal, unbridled lust, culminating in one of the most savage, brutal murders the state has ever known, end quote. Their main evidence was John Traver's confession that was recorded by Miss X. Prosecutors believed that the motive for the murder was because Anita saw the faces of the men who abducted her and would be able to identify them. They said it didn't matter who actually stabbed Anita. All five men were equally culpable in her death. I believe that 100%. Me too, for sure. The defense, of course, stuck to the only case they really had, which was that John Travers was the only one to have a knife out of all the men and that since he was the one who actually committed the murder, he should be the only one held accountable. They said that there was no direct evidence that proved that the other four men helped or encouraged Travers to actually go through with it. They also alleged that John's confession was obtained improperly by force. I don't think so. Just because no. his aunt wore a wire, that's not that's not really improper, no. in my opinion. So after both sides rested their case, the jury deliberated for a day before being sequestered to a secret location to continue deliberating overnight. At 10 a.m. the next morning, they finally had a verdict. The jury and the defendants all returned to the courtroom. All four men were found guilty on all counts. Murder, taking with intent to hold for advantage, assault and robbery, immediately after such robbery, using corporal violence, wounding the victim, inflicting actual bodily harm with intent to have sexual intercourse, and stealing a car. On June 16, 1987, all five men were sentenced. They all received penal servitude for life for the murder, 16 years for taking with intent to hold for advantage, 17 years for assault and robbery, 12 years for inflicting bodily harm, and 5 years for stealing a car, 
Leslie Murphy was the only one who actually got a little bit less. He only got three years for stealing the car. These sentences would all be served concurrently. Judge Maxwell called Anita's murder one of the most horrifying physical and sexual assaults and said that her killing was calculated and done in cold blood. He actually recommended after this case that the official files for each of the prisoners be clearly marked with never to be released. James Murdoch and the three Murphy brothers all appealed their convictions and sentences, and all of those appeals were actually dismissed. Great. Anita's murder greatly shocked her community. Chief Inspector Gary Raymond said that it, quote, changed the awareness of the level of violence that could be perpetrated, which woke the community up out of their slumber, end quote. After Anita's murder, people stopped walking alone and felt scared to go out at night. In 1993, Anita's parents started the Homicide Victim Support Group, along with the parents of another girl who suffered a similar death. After Anita's murder, her husband John spiraled down a dark path. Just three days after her death, John began using heroin for the first time in his life. He said that at the time he wanted to die, but he was too scared to do it, so he hoped he would just overdose and never wake up. But that didn't happen. Instead, he became a recluse. He moved to America and changed his name to John Francis, just doing anything he could to escape what happened. To this day, he says he still feels guilty over Anita's death and feels like it's his fault that she was murdered. I feel terrible that he feels that way. Like, nothing about this could be his fault. Nothing, nothing, nothing. That's just so I know. much burden to I carry on I feel so terrible person. for him. Yeah. In 2016, he spoke publicly in a documentary for the first time. It was called You Thought You Knew It All. In this film, he actually visits Anita's memorial plaque at the Sydney Hospital. John later remarried and had two children, but unfortunately that marriage ended. He is still a nurse, though, and after 30 years, he did finally change his name back to John Cobby, and one of his children actually changed his name from Francis to Cobby along with his dad. Anita's father, Gary, died in 2008 at the age of 90, and he was buried next to Anita. Anita's mom, Grace, passed away in 2013 at 88, and she was also buried with Anita and Gary. Gary and Grace helped many families with their support group and contributed a lot to helping life sentence prison offenders go through rehabilitation and prepare them for a possible release. I think that's so amazing when you see that victims' family members put their energy and their efforts into helping prison offenders, like life sentence offenders, trying to get back on their feet and to rehabilitate themselves. I think that's so amazing when when they're able to do that and if that brings healing and closure to them. Like, it just, it makes me happy. But it's just, to me, I'm just, I'm always in awe of people who can do stuff like that. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it's so horrific. They've gone through so much and to be able to channel that into something else to help other people that they know there's going to be more people like them and they might not have had the resources and they want to make it be available to other people. But like you were saying, to to go into the way of the prison system and to say we want to help those people and help them get out is just beyond admirable. So John Travers reportedly tried to escape from prison by faking illness and arming himself with a hacksaw. This was a failed attempt. He was also being given protection from other inmates who wanted to beat him and he was scared for his life. He's still in prison where he belongs along with the rest of the perpetrators, except for Michael Murphy, who died of cancer in 2019 while he was in prison. One of the other Murphy brothers, Gary, was apparently attacked in 2019 by eight inmates while he was in the shower. They bashed him in the head, giving him several head injuries, which required hospitalization for a month. He was sent back to prison in July. 
Miss X actually started getting death threats after the trial and had to go into witness protection program, which she is still in over 30 years later. Wow. Why would she be getting death threats? I guess from these I terrible men, terrible she was families. His aunt. Yeah, because she was in the family and she like turned on her nephew, I guess, and helped the police. But I, I, how could you not? I just don't. I, I just. Well, here's the thing. Here's how you could not, because I can understand somebody not wanting to be involved in something when now this poor person is in witness protection program, has to leave everything for the rest of her life. You know, like she sacrificed everything to do this. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I think she should, but I'm just saying like, man, can you imagine being brought into this and your entire, you had nothing to do with this and your entire life, you have nothing. Your whole life is over. You, you have to start a whole new life. It's, I mean, I know, wow. I know this case, it's so terrible and awful. And our lovely friend Haley helped us with the research for this one. And uh, yes. we've been kind of sitting on this one for a while because we knew it was not really typical of moms and murder, but it's just so sad and it's so senseless. And these are the cases that get me because there really was no reason. They just saw her walking and no, there was absolutely no reason for this. And it's so terrifying. And these are the cases. This is the reason that you have, you know, like, like they said in the story, it was after this that people started paying more attention, being scared to go out alone at night, starting to use the buddy system and, you know, always having a friend with you. And these are the kind of cases that are the reason we have to think that, you know, I, I think about those kind of things all the time, especially doing a crime podcast and hearing different stories. You know, I, I go out running a lot by myself and it's, I always think of these kind of things about, you know, having to be careful. And it's just really sad that we live it, We live in a way that we have to think about that or have to worry about things like that. Right. Yeah. Man, so sad. But I think what her parents were able to do was amazing. And you know, that's going to live on well beyond when they lived, you know, that that's still going on right now. What, what the things that they put in place to help others, you know, will outlive all of us, you know? Yes. All right, so we are going to lighten things up a little bit. We're going to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go. And I'm excited about this one because since we're in Australia this week, we decided to obviously do Australian phrases. You know, every time we go to another country, we like to look up fun words and phrases, they say. Um, And we always have a lot of fun with those. And we've had some people write us and say they really like those. So Australia is such a fun one to do words and phrases because they have the best words and phrases. And yeah, I like want to adopt them all. And every time I hear an Australian person talk or see them typing on the internet and they say like some of the things they say, I'm always just cracking up laughing because they all make sense when you think about them. But you're like, yeah, when you break it when down, you break it down. Yeah. And they're always so hilarious. So Melissa, let's go through yeah. and laugh at some Australian phrases that we love. Okay. So my first one is Melissa put on makeup, but her face still looks like a drop pie, mate. Oh my gosh, I had this one too. It means you ugly. <laughs> I know. Um, typically, I try to put like other names in there, but I was like, no, I'm not really feeling myself yeah. today. This will be good. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Like a drop pie, face like a drop pie. But it's like it's insulting, but it's also like only mildly insulting. You know exactly <laughs> what I look like right now, don't you? <laughs> That's all that matters. It paints a clear picture. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So what, Melissa, do you think it means if I were to say that I think you are the cat's pajamas? Well, I think it means that while ugly, I'm still cute. 
<laughs> or cool, cool. Yeah. So I think it's similar to like saying that something is the bee's knees. Like we say that. Okay. Like, so it means something is really excellent. Do we say that? I, I mean, we, as in you and I, do not say that, but some people do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it before for sure. Okay. Let's see. Melissa may still be listening to Rick Astley around the clock, but she'll be apples, mate. (laughs) She'll be apples is the phrase. Crazy. She'll be crazy. She'll be. My gosh. I wasn't being that mean to myself. (laughs) No, it means I'll be fine, uh, which is a lie. I know I confused you there. Um, Also, my son, uh, by the way, started playing breakfast at Tiffany's and I was like, yes, we're switching. He played it one time and then he made A-L-E-X-A go right back to the other (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Week five. All right, Mandy, what else you got? Okay. Um, So I don't have full sentences for you. I just have things, random I don't know. I didn't mean to even do this, and then (laughs) I ended up. Go ahead. Okay. So what does it mean if you or if someone spits the dummy? Ooh, spits the dummy. I feel like that could be gossips, but I don't know. I see where you're going with that. Yeah. No, so it actually means to lose your temper. So it comes from like... Mm. When a baby spits out their pacifier and just erupts into a screaming fit. (laughs) So yeah, so if you're getting mad or if your child's getting mad, you can tell them, don't spit the dummy. Which will only make make them them spit the dummy much harder. (laughs) Yeah. I want to use that like on people, you know, passive aggressively, like when there's... Oh, don't do that. That's... Oh my gosh. No, I truly cannot even imagine how enraged I would get. It's like when my husband's like no, it's fine. Like, uh, just calm down. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, well, like the could. worst thing you can say to me is calm down because yeah. I will go to 11. I'm ready to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My last one, another sentence. Melissa's goal to sleep without Rick Astley is cactus mate. I see a theme here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's cactus. Cactus is the word. Yeah. I don't know. It's dead. It's over. Oh, no. It's never going to happen. I'm going to listen to it forever. <laughs> but I like that to say something is cactus. Like, yeah. Ugh, that dream is cactus. I don't know. That's not a great one, but. Well, uh, tell us if you're, if you're Australian, tell us how to use cactus better. We need, we need more context. We need pointers. And also, I love that, like, we just Googled these. So truly, it could be like. It could be anything. Uh, yeah. A place for Americans, idiot Americans to find, you know, funny phrases that aren't even real. It's like Michael Scott learning uh, words from people in the warehouse. It's just not a thing. Right. All right. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So this will be my last thing. So I just have a couple of what was, I found these on a thing that said they were mild insults and I just, yeah. So I just love words um, that they call each other as insults because I mean, they're insulting, but it's funny because we don't use these same words. So my favorite one is rat bag. (laughs) <laughs> rat back or bag bag rat bag oh I like that one I do too okay so then if you are talking about a nosy person you can call them a sticky beak sticky beak all right yeah. I like that one too yeah. and then another one of my favorites that you can call someone is a wombat <laughs> oh <laughs> I feel like we don't use that one enough I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody use that but I like it yeah I'm going to do that I love it I came across several that were like they're words that we use, like that we have, but like not in the same way. And I just love that. I feel like I have new options now whenever I'm, I mean, I don't really insult people, but in traffic. Yeah, yeah exactly. I have new things to scream um, in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your kids can't say like, that's a bad word, mom. That's what my son is like, mom. I'm like, oh gosh. Yeah. This isn't good. Why'd you hear that? All right, guys. Well, that was it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. 
Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.